Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing dissolving the ego. The ego serves no purpose. This is chapter 17 in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. I'm really pleased that you chose to join today's class because in today's class, we're going to be talking about what the ego is. We're going to be talking about how to dissolve it. And we're going to be talking about some of the Buddhist teachings directly related to the ego. And this understanding of what the ego is and how to dissolve it is going to help you on this path to enlightenment. Because if the mind still retains the ego, then you will never experience enlightenment. Enlightenment is a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy where this mental state is permanent. The mind no longer experiences discontent feelings like anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, jealousy, resentment, envy. Any of these discontent feelings have been completely eliminated from the mind and it now resides completely peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And in order to do that, you're going to need to understand what the ego is some of the challenges and problems that it creates, and then how to dissolve it. And we'll, like I mentioned, go into some of the Buddhist teachings along this line as well. Well, Everything that I'm teaching is the Buddhist teachings, but we'll actually use some of his actual words to help you see exactly what he was talking about, in addition to the things that I'm sharing with you. So thank you very much for being here. As we go in our conversation, remember that questions are really important for you. Understanding the teachings and implementing them into your life is really important because it's one thing to just listen to somebody talk about the teachings. But in order to see real results, real observable results, you need to be able to implement the teachings that you learn into your daily life. You need to actually do something. It's not just listening to a talk only. It's actually listening understanding. And in order to understand, you need to be able to ask questions so that then you have the intellectual knowledge of what the teachings are so that you can then apply them in daily life and actually improve the condition of the mind through training the mind. So in our class session today, 
you have the ability to ask questions. Whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can just type the question into the comment section and our moderator, Max, will be sure that the question gets asked and then I will answer it for you during the class. And I'll stop at different times to ensure you have an opportunity to actually ask questions and get those answered. And of course, the folks in our Zoom classroom, you get a chance to raise your hand and ask the question directly if you'd like. And for those of you guys that are listening on the podcast, you're welcome to move into our Facebook group, which is Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, where you can ask questions there or you can contact me privately in order to ask any questions that you might have. So welcome, pleased you're here. Let's get started with learning about dissolving the ego. The ego serves no wholesome purpose. So the first thing I would like to do in order to start our discussion is to just ask you, do you have ego? You answer that for yourself. You don't need to answer it out loud because I probably can't hear you anyway. You're probably on mute or in one of the social media platforms. But answer this question for yourself. Do you have ego? Well, if you answered yes, you do have ego, Okay, I understand. If you answered no, that you don't have ego, then you have ego. Because the ego is going to want to convince you that it doesn't exist. This ego is very tricky, the way that it works. And we're going to talk about it today and ensure that you understand what the ego is so that then you can work to dissolve it. And my final advice that you're going to hear me give at the end of the class is you should never assume that the ego has gone, that there is no ego. You should always be actively working to understand what the ego is and how to dissolve it. So let's do that today in our class. What is the ego? What the ego is, is it's our experiences. It's a collection of our experiences from the past that get accumulated in the mind and it's the future expectations that we have of ourselves. The ego is an accumulation of our thoughts, ideas, and perceptions that we have of ourself, our self-image, and our self-identity. This is essentially the ego in a nutshell. The word ego didn't actually exist during the lifetime of Gautama Buddha. This word is kind of come into use during modern times. And what the Buddha did is he actually described two separate things that we call the ego. He described these two separate things. And eventually, by the time we get to where we are today, we start referring to these two separate things as the ego. But it really helps to understand the ego in the way that Gautama Buddha understood what we're describing as the ego. Because if you understand it the way that the Buddha did, you can see these two different aspects of the ego, and then you can actively work to eliminate both of them once you're convinced that you don't need them and that they're causing problems for you. So let's be sure that you understand what the Buddha was describing when he was teaching about what to eliminate from the mind and that today we refer to as ego. What the Buddha was talking about is something that he called personal existence view, or he summarized this in his teachings of non-self. So in the three universal truths, 
that we discussed last session, and we've discussed at other times as well, is there's this third universal truth of non-self and the Buddhist teaching that there is no permanent self. Well, what the mind has in it that needs to be eliminated, which is being described as part of this ego in this word that we use ego, is the self. The unenlightened mind has this self-identity and this self-image that it holds on to. It thinks that you know who you are, that you have a certain identity, you have a certain image, you start assigning that you are this physical body. And because of that, this permanent self that resides in the unenlightened mind, it causes problems. Because now, if somebody says something, then you perceive this word or this phrase or this interaction that you have with someone, you start trying to protect the self. You start trying to protect this self-image and this self-identity and the mind might become hostile or aggressive. And it doesn't like these comments that people might be sharing with you, either in person or in Facebook or some other place. It can't reside permanently peaceful calm, serene, and content with joy because whenever it hears something that is negative or something displeasing to the mind, the mind reacts with hostility or anger or aggression. And that's because the unenlightened mind has this personal existence view, this self-image and this self-identity. It thinks that there's actually a real self here. But you can learn that this isn't true, that there is no self, because the way that you looked at yourself in terms of your self-identity and your self-image when you were growing up is very different than the way you look at yourself now. So when you were 10 years old or 20 years old, you had a certain self-image of yourself and you thought you knew who you were and you looked at the world through this self-image that you had acquired in the mind, this collection of experiences in the mind, you're looking out through these experiences, looking at the world and perceiving yourself in a certain way. Well, now, however many years later, depending how old you are, you look at yourself very differently. You have a very different self-image and self-identity than you did 20 years ago, or even 10 years, or maybe even five years ago, you have a very different outlook of who you feel you are. That's because there is no permanent self. If there was a permanent self, the way that you viewed yourself 10 or 20 years ago would be exactly the same as you view yourself today. And that's not true. If you look internally, you can see that your self-image and your self-identity has been constantly changing throughout your life. And even at this point in your life, a lot of people say, I just need to find myself. I need to find my true self. I don't know who I am anymore. I need to find my true self. Well, the reason why people say this is because there is no self. People are constantly looking for a self, thinking that there's one there. Either the mind has a permanent self in the mind and thinks that it's there and tries to protect it and becomes hostile because of this permanent self, or when this self starts to erode and the mind slowly starts to realize there is no self prior to understanding these teachings, then someone can be very lost and very confused 
because they think that there should be a self. Because as they were growing up all of these years, they thought that there was a self. They had a certain self-identity and a certain self-image. And as this kind of has slowly eroded, even without learning these teachings, as this slowly erodes, oftentimes a person can be left very confused and very bewildered because they think that there should be a permanent self because that's kind of all they've ever known growing up. And now that they're experiencing this self-identity and self-image starting to erode, they might feel that they need to go on this quest of finding their self or finding their true self, right? And this is the mind trying to latch on to permanence and is trying to latch on to this permanent self. But what the Buddha is saying is it doesn't exist. That's a quest that someone will never be able to fulfill is if they go on this quest to find their true self, they will never be content with that because they're never going to find a permanent, never changing self. So it's kind of like self-sabotage and kind of a downward spiral because the mind's going to just keep getting confused and confused and confused. As soon as the mind thinks that it has found a true self, a permanent self, well, then it changes because there is no permanent self. So it's important to understand that part of this ego that we're using the word ego to describe is this personal existence view. The ego thinks that there is a permanent self, a permanent self-image, a permanent self-identity, and the ego wants to hold on to this, and it doesn't want to let it go. And this can oftentimes be very confusing for somebody as you're awakening the mind and you start to observe past lives. Then if you hold on to this permanent self thinking that's who you are, and you start having these residual memories of past lives, you can get very confused and very conflicted, very bewildered. And if you start talking to people who aren't familiar with this, someone might say that you have schizophrenia or you have a mental disorder because they don't understand the cycle of rebirth and they don't understand that these are residual memories from the past that you're having. And when these residual memories kind of buck up against this permanent self, that is being held in the unenlightened mind, then there's this conflict in the unenlightened mind just wants to hold on and hold on and hold on to this permanent self from this life while these memories and these residual memories from the past are bucking up against that and saying, no, 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 that's not who you are. You've actually been all these other beings in the past. So letting go of this permanent self, eliminating and eradicating this permanent self will not only help you to be more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you will no longer protect the self with hostility and anger and aggression. You'll be more at ease when you're around people, but you also won't go on this quest to try to find the true self because you already know that there isn't one there. And then if you start having these residual memories from your past, then when those start coming in to this life, then you'll just understand what they are. And rather than trying to fulfill this future expectations that you have of yourself and that other people have of you, you can just reside in the present moment knowing that there is no self. And by you having expectations of what you should 
or shouldn't be doing in the future. It's going to cause conflict in the mind. Or if you adopt and accept or inherit the expectations of other people that expect you to be a certain way, either now or in the future, if you recognize that that's just other people's expectations of you trying to define who you are as a person, if you recognize that for what that is, then you won't feel like you're always trying to constantly fulfill certain expectations. Because if either you or somebody else creates expectations for you, and you're just constantly trying to fulfill those, it feels like you're clawing up a cliff. It feels like you're clawing up a wall and you can never quite get there. Because as soon as you start getting close to what you expect or what other people expect, your expectations are impermanent. And so is everybody else's. So the expectations change. As soon as you thought you were getting close to where you expected, now the expectations change and you've got more clawing to do to get there. And then when you get there, those expectations change. So the mind is just constantly longing with this strong eagerness, this craving. As long as there's this personal existence view, there's going to be these expectations and the mind is going to just keep clawing and craving to be somewhere that it's not. Instead of being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy where it's at, in the present moment, the mind always wants to be somewhere else that it's not. And as soon as it claws its way there, then it changes and those expectations change. So the mind can't reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy as long as this personal existence view, this self-image and self-identity, this one aspect of the ego, as long as that's in the mind, the mind can't be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You have to understand what is non-self, that there is no permanent self, and you need to eradicate this interest to maintain this permanent self. And one of the ways that you can do that is kind of disassociate with this permanent self. So where you see that you're trying to create a certain image or a certain identity, or you're trying to say, this is my car, my house, my son, my book, my computer, everything becomes mine, mine, mine. When there's a self, the mind becomes very selfish. So the mind's going to want to hold on to everything tightly. Mine, 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 mine. And what you have to do is you have to disassociate with that and you have to let it go where it's like, okay, this is a computer, but it's not my computer. Okay, this is a car that I use for transportation, but it's not my car because it can't be mine because it's impermanent. It's not going to be mine forever. If it was mine, then it means it would be permanent. But essentially what you're doing is you're almost kind of like renting this computer, even if you purchased it, because it's not going to be with you forever or this car or this relationship. And if you start disassociating with everything being mine, 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 and you stop associating with this self-image and self-identity, these expectations that you have of yourself and that others have of you, then you can start to slowly erode and eradicate this aspect of the ego, which is personal existence view. This is the first fetter in the 10 fetters. In order to attain enlightenment, you need to eliminate 
the ten fetters. And in order to get to that first stage of enlightenment, you need to eradicate the first three fetters. And the first fetter is personal existence view. So you need to work on this throughout your practice that wherever you see yourself being selfish, wherever you see yourself trying to live up to your expectations or others' expectations, or wherever you see yourself trying to project a self-image or self-identity, you need to draw that back and eliminate that. That will really help you. And we're going to talk about some other solutions as well. But this is one aspect of the ego, the personal existence view. The other aspect of what the Buddha was talking about that we summarize in what we call the ego is conceit. What conceit is, is arrogance, pride, judging, measuring or comparing as you are superior to others or that you're inferior, that you're under other people, looking up to people. Both of these are detrimental to the mind. You understand that if you're arrogant and you're looking down on somebody with pride and judging and measuring and comparing, nobody likes to be around that person. Nobody enjoys being around that arrogant, egotistical person, right? So if you don't like being around something like that, it's not an enjoyable experience, then you need to ensure that you're not doing that around other people because nobody's going to enjoy having a relationship with you if you walk around being arrogant or prideful or judging people or measuring or comparing people. But just as detrimental to the mind as putting yourself as being superior and looking down on others, just as dangerous for you is to put yourself below others and look up to them. And you know that this causes problems if you've ever done this in the past, because if you've ever been around somebody that you consider to be of high importance, maybe a certain position in your company, maybe a certain position in your community, maybe a famous celebrity or a politician or somebody like this, when you were around that person, you became very nervous. You may even had sweaty palms. You might have not quite known what to say. Your words might even have been stumbled when they came out. This is because the mind is discontent. The mind is looking up to this person and placing them so high on a pedestal that you don't feel comfortable. You aren't peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy being around this person. And you're looking up to them in such awe that it's causing the mind to be discontent. And you may even be disparaging yourself and making yourself feel very negative. You can even do this, not even just with these famous people or people of high positions, but even people like your parents, maybe your mother and father, you look up to them and you treasure them and you just think that they're the best people that ever walk the planet of the earth. There's nothing wrong with thinking that way about your parents. But now if you hold their life and what they did in this life, as an expectation of what you should or should not be doing. Now you're looking up to them and you're putting them above you, you feeling inferior. And now the mind isn't peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you think that your parents are such wonderful people and that you could never measure up to them. 
and you just look at yourself as being down and you kind of disparage yourself and you talk negative to yourself. And this can cause sadness and depression. That discontentedness will start to ease into the mind because of this conceit. We understand conceit often through arrogance, pride, judging and measuring people and being superior. But there's also this aspect of conceit that if you put people above you, that is also very dangerous to you as well. So you need to train the mind to just be in the middle and view all people equally. Whether it's your parents, whether it's somebody who does any particular job in your community, a taxi driver, a server, a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home dad, the president of your country, the king of your country, the community leaders who are doing lots of wonderful things in the community. All of these people have different roles in our society, but we shouldn't be viewing one person above or below others. Because when we do, it causes problems in the mind, and then you're gonna find challenges in having relationships and relating to these people and having beneficial outcomes when you're in conversations with these people. So conceit is the eighth fetter. It's one of the upper fetters. In order to attain enlightenment, you would need to eliminate this arrogance, pride, judging, measuring, comparing as people superior or inferior. What you need to do in order to eliminate this from the mind is you need to practice viewing all people equally and consider all people equal. That's what you need to do in order to eliminate this aspect. So don't judge yourself and don't judge others. Don't hold yourself as higher or lower than others. Just view everybody as equal, okay? This is what the ego is, the way that we use this word, the ego. It's separated into these two different aspects, and it really helps you to look at these and then eliminate them separately because the ego is kind of bound up into these two individual things. And if you try to approach the ego as all one big entity, you might have difficulty really trying to dismantle and eradicate this ego. So by separating it and understanding these two component parts, you can see it for what it is and you can address each individual part individually. And typically what you're going to be doing is practicing being humble, being peaceful, being calm, not trying to project this self-image, not being arrogant, putting yourself above or below people. And all of these things and all the different relationships that you're in will help you to eradicate the ego. And one of the interesting things about the ego is it's always going to want to convince you that it's not there. That's why I suggest that you don't ever convince yourself that the ego is gone. And that's why if you ever say that your ego is gone, you can be sure that it's still there. Because if I asked you, do you have ego? You're like, no, 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 I don't have ego, right? That's the ego trying to protect itself because the ego doesn't want to let go. The ego, this self-identity and this arrogance and pride measuring, it doesn't want to let go. This is what is really holding on in the unenlightened mind and keeping you in the unenlightened state. This is one of the big things that keep you in the unenlightened state. You can actually awaken the mind quite well in that first, second, third stage of enlightenment. And you might even feel that you're super, super enlightened because 
the difference between being completely unenlightened off this path versus experiencing the jhanas versus experiencing the first, second, third stage of enlightenment, it is like night and day. I mean, it is so apparent. But a lot of times when people get into that first, second, third stage of enlightenment, the difference of the mind is so different and you're feeling so good that there's a bit of this arrogance or pride or judging others for not being where you are in your practice, right? And that's why it's one of these upper fetters, these higher fetters, where you need to eliminate this conceit, this ego needs to be completely dissolved, where you now start having compassion for other people who maybe aren't on this path or who maybe aren't progressing on this path. Or you need to have loving kindness for others, where you have this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, that you're not judging others. So this is where you really need to start to understand these two different aspects of the ego and address them both individually and independently so you can chip away at them and eradicate them from the mind so that you can blossom into this brightness of the enlightened mind where you're not walking around feeling arrogant like you're above people, but you're also not feeling like you're below people either because that's going to be detrimental. And you're not trying to protect this self-image and this self-identity with hostility and anger when you hear something that's displeasing. The mind can reside in this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So if you think that the ego is gone and you have no ego, then the ego is right there trying to convince you of that. It's better to just always be working at these two and ensure that in all situations, you're not having this self-image, self-identity that you're trying to project or this aspect of conceit, this arrogance, pride, judging, measuring, comparing that you're superior or inferior. So let me pause here before we go further and see what questions you guys might have about what the ego is and discussing this a bit more. We have a question from Javier. He asks, no self, no ego. Does it mean that we are one with the universe or doesn't have anything to do with this? I don't think about being one with the universe. This is something that comes from other types of teachings. I think that's kind of egotistical to think that you're one with the universe. Not that I'm saying you have ego, Javier, but I think this teaching that would teach that, oh, now I'm one with the universe. I think that's very egotistical in and of itself because what you got to get to is that you are nothing. You're nothing. It's just this physical body and there's this mind that came together for this existence. You are nothing. I'm nobody. I'm a nobody. And getting comfortable with that. And it doesn't mean that you disparage yourself. It doesn't mean you look at yourself in a negative light or a negative view. Because to go around thinking that you're nobody and you're nothing, you might have some sadness with that. And if you do, that's the ego starting to dissolve. Because as the ego starts to dissolve, oftentimes some sadness or depression can start to kick in. This is the death of the ego that one starts to experience. But if we go around thinking that we're one with the universe, or I've even seen some people that say that they are a God, they are God, really, this is the ego. So I actually went around for several months 
just telling myself that I'm nothing, that I'm nobody. I'm a nobody. I'm nothing. And in every situation where I felt like this arrogance was trying to come up and kind of jump over top, I just always told myself, oh, you're nothing. You're a nobody. Why do you think that this person should talk polite to you? You're a nobody. Right? You're nothing. So doing that and getting rid of that nasty, ugly ego is one thing. But then ensuring that there is some confidence there in the mind is important that you don't completely disparage the self to the point where you don't have any kind of confidence. There needs to be a certain amount of confidence. And when you gain wisdom, a person with wisdom only needs to walk with that wisdom in a smile. A person with wisdom doesn't need to project to everybody else how intelligent and how smart they are. Because this is one of the things that the ego does in conversations is when you're in a conversation and you hear somebody say something that's quite intelligent and quite smart, then the ego feels like, well, let me get in there and show them how smart I am, right? This is the arrogance. And when you feel that, when you feel that pull to do that, just tell yourself, no, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I don't need to say that right now. So I don't suggest considering yourself as being one with the universe. I suggest you consider yourself to be nothing, nobody, nothing, that you don't even exist. There is no you. The Buddha said this famously, there is no you in there, in that physical body, in that mind, there is no you in there. So repeat that to yourself over and over in situations where the ego wants to come out and be arrogant. Okay, let's go to Judith next. Judith asks, sometimes we are told that we need a self in order to function in this life. How would this work? Why do you need a self? Do you really need to project this self-image and self-identity? You have to ask yourself, what's the benefit of that? By holding on to this self and projecting this self-image and self-identity, that means you're just going to protect it. In the animal realm, you did need a self. And that's where this is coming from. We needed it in the animal realm. And all of us have been reborn countless times in the animal realm. So we got so used to in the consciousness having this self. And it was important for the animal realm. And then when we moved into the human realm, that self is still there. In the animal realm, you need a self because you need to walk around. You need to protect the self because if you're a deer or you're some prey animal and a predator comes around, you need to be able to protect the self. And even as a predator, you still need to protect the self because you need to protect your boundaries and you need to exert yourself as a predator. You need a self in the animal realm. But in the human realm, you don't need to protect the self. There's maybe situations where you need to protect the physical body if somebody attacks you. You need to protect the physical body, but the physical body isn't the self. The self is just this part in the mind that the mind wants to hold on to this permanent self and protect that permanent self. So if you eradicate that part of the mind and then the mind doesn't have to go around being fearful and looking out for protecting that self, because that's what these prey animals do and even predators in the animal realm, they walk around fearful pretty much all day. 
because they're very fearful because they're trying to protect the self. That's what a human being will do when it has a self in the mind is you'll kind of always be on guard and your mind will almost become neurotic in certain situations looking out for the next person who's going to disparage you or talk bad about you or you're looking for that slight change of tone or those words that the mind just doesn't like and you're like ah i don't like this person anymore or ah you know this person was rude to me i'm going to push them away this is what the mind's looking to do when it has a self but this is a very detrimental aspect of the mind that's going to stand in conflict of you actually residing peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because there's always going to be this fear there. We have a question from Michael. So if we are nothing, does that mean everything around us is nothing also? Trying to understand Buddha's view on nothingness. Yes. Everything's nothing. It's almost like it doesn't exist. Sure, you know, there's a, a physical bottle here, right? This physical bottle, it's physically here. It exists but it's impermanent so in a lot of regards it doesn't really actually exist it's it's going to change it's not going to be that physical bottle all the time so this physical body is the same way it's physically here right now with this mind but it's not permanent so this physical body isn't the permanent self it can't be the permanent self because this physical body isn't permanent so You've got to look at yourself as it doesn't exist. There is no you, that this physical body isn't you. It's not who you are. Even the thoughts, ideas, and perceptions that you have in the mind, that's not you either. That's not who you are. If you have negative thoughts in your mind at any given time, that's not who you are. Those thoughts, ideas, and perceptions don't define you. Or if you have wholesome thoughts in the mind, those wholesome thoughts, ideas, and perceptions, they don't define who you are either. As long as the mind's looking for who you are and trying to grasp, as long as it has this longing and strong eagerness to grasp onto this self, then it's always going to be discontent because there is no self there and it keeps looking for one. So if you just help yourself to see that there is no self. We use these words, I, me, you, Michael, Jacqueline, James, Judith. We use these names and these pronouns because it makes it easy to refer to people, right? If my son came in and I didn't say this is my son, and I said, oh, this is the offspring that I had with that woman over there. You know, people would be like, whoa, that's kind of confusing. So our language isn't really equipped to explain what it is that we're experiencing. We're experiencing this human existence with this physical body and with this mind coming together. And we use pronouns of I, me, you, David, teacher, we use these pronouns to refer to people, but this language isn't equipped to really explain what's going on here. So you have to strip this away. And I made a really concerted effort for a long period of time, and even still today, I try not to use I or you or me or my. 
I try to strip all that out from when I'm talking because it trains the mind that those things don't exist. There is no you. There's nothing here. And you got to train the mind that not only is there nothing here in terms of the physical body and mind, this isn't you, but there's nothing here in this world for you, right? We're in this world. We're existing. We're doing things. But there's really nothing here to hold on to and latch on to. As long as the mind wants something, it's going to keep having craving. And that means it's going to keep being reborn and brought back into the world. So you've got to strip it down to where not only are you nothing and you're nobody, but yeah, everything around you. It's like, I don't want any of this stuff. I don't want it. I might need water. I might need food. I might need clothes. I might need shelter. I might need medical care. But all of these things aren't wants and desires. As long as that's there, then the mind's going to keep being reborn. There's going to keep being new existences. And this is going to cause continued rebirth and continued discontentedness. So you got to strip all this away and just look at it as there's nothing here. There's nothing here in terms of me, I, or you, or David. There is no David here. It's just a physical body and a mind. And also, there's nothing here in this world that I'm interested in latching onto and holding onto or coming back for. I just let it all go. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to me because there is no me. Just to follow up on Michael's question then, David, to, to check my understanding here. So, so the, the bottle exists, but it exists because we can see it. It exists as a sight. It exists as a sensation. And it exists as an idea. That's the only way it really exists. It's the only way we can really know it's there. And so that idea is impermanent. And the way we experience it is impermanent. And those two things aren't going to match up permanently. So is that right in that the bottle exists, but only insofar as we can experience it through the five senses plus our mind? I agree with that. And I'll add to that is this physical bottle exists right now. Right now, in this moment, it exists, but soon it won't exist anymore because it's impermanent. So if it's not going to exist permanently, did it ever really exist to begin with, right? So if this physical body isn't permanent, which we know it's not permanent, did this physical body ever really exist to begin with? Yeah, it's physically here. You can see it right now, but it's not permanent. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I'll go to another question because there's a, a few more. So mm-hmm. uh, let's go to a question from Joy. She asks, in relation to conceit, how do you not judge people that harm others? I find this very difficult. You've got to understand that that's that person's actions or their speech that's harming other people. That's the decisions that they're making. And if you judge them and you look down on them, then it's not helpful for you. So if somebody else is harming other people, of course, if you're there and you can help, help if you like, and if that's the choice that you're making. But there's no reason to judge this person as good or bad. It's better for you in your mind to have loving kindness and compassion for this person, recognizing that they don't have the wisdom that they need or they don't have the control of the mind that they need 
in order to ensure that they're not hurting this person. So rather than judging them as good or bad, have concern for their misfortune, which is compassion, that they don't have the wisdom to realize that they're hurting somebody or they don't have the control of the mind because they haven't trained the mind well enough to be able to control it in that situation. So their speech and actions are unwholesome decisions that they're making because they're lacking the wisdom or the control of the mind, but that doesn't make them a bad person. Just because they lack wisdom and they lack control of their mind doesn't make them a bad person. Now, in your situation, you might have the wisdom and control to not harm that person in the way that that other person's harming. But if you judge them and you look down on them, now you have conceit. So rather than allowing your mind to have arrogance and look down on them, it's better for you in that situation to just recognize they don't have the wisdom, they don't have the control of the mind, they're making bad decisions as an individual. I disagree with their decisions. My opinion is that they shouldn't be doing that. However, I'm not here to judge them as being good or bad, but they are harming this person. And there's no benefit for you to judge them of being good or bad. You can disagree with somebody's decisions. You can disagree with their speech and their actions without judging them. We have a question from Amina. How can parents balance dissolving the ego and also helping to raise a child? Right. So it's important with children that you don't have ego because that's going to condition their mind to have ego as well. So it's important that you guide them, you give them guidance, you give them encouragement, you give them support, and you help them to make decisions. And where appropriate, let them make decisions. And oftentimes what I do with my son is I'll set up a certain situation or he's encountering a certain decision and I'll give him two or three options, which I would be fine with any of those options, but I kind of help him see. And sometimes I get him to come up with the options of, you know, what are your options here? What things are you thinking that you might decide to do in this decision? And then he shares with me, daddy, I think I should do it this way. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I'm I'm glad to see that you're thinking that way. Have you thought about this? Is this something that you've considered yet? How do you think that would work for you? So what you're doing with a child is we're not interested in controlling them. We're not interested in dictating behavior. We're not interested in giving them rules to follow. And when they break these rules, they're punished. What we're interested in doing with children is teaching them how to be good decision makers because it's their decisions that are going to lead to certain results. This is their gamma. So helping them learn how to make good decisions and what makes a good decision a good decision will benefit them long term because as a parent, during their life and after you die, you can't be there with them permanently. So if as a parent, we come in with ego and try to dictate to them or try to control them or try to force them to be a certain way, then what they're learning is mommy and daddy are going to make all the decisions for me. And I just need to follow mommy and daddy. Well, what happens when you're not there? Because you're impermanent. You're either not there in this life or you die and now they're on their own. Basically, you've 
created this child that is unable to make decisions on their own. So by you being humble and helping guide them and learning how to make really good decisions, then you're empowering them and you're supporting them to be able to make decisions on their own, whether you're with them or not. And in their early years, you know, you're helping them a lot, make a whole lot of decisions. Like, I think it's a good time for you to brush your teeth. You're about to go to sleep. You should probably brush your teeth, right? And this kind of like leads them in the right direction, but ultimately they have to make the choice to brush their teeth rather than get in there and brush your teeth right now. You've got to get to bed, brush your teeth now, right? This is controlling them rather than kind of giving them a choice to make. Because what you're trying to do is lay out this path for them where they're consistently making better and better and better choices. So pretty much everything that I say with my son is always an opportunity for him to make a decision rather than me telling him what to do. So if he's sitting around watching video games and uh, watching TV and his mom's outside in the yard working, I'll say, you've been watching TV for quite a while. I think it's a good idea if you go help your mom. What do you think? Right? Kind of giving him a chance to make a decision. He's like, no, no, no. I like to watch TV. Oh, really? I think you've watched enough TV. You should really consider getting out there and helping your mom. Right? And more and more, eventually, if he doesn't make the right decision in that situation, I'll be like, you know what? I think you should share the TV. Daddy would like to watch the TV. And then I'll sit down and kind of put on something and say, you know, maybe you should find something else to do. So you're kind of like encouraging him along the way, giving them the chance to make right decisions and make good decisions in the right direction, but ultimately really showing them what the decisions are and showing them that they're creating good results. And this comes over time. But you got to be sure that you're not coming at it from a position of, I am the parent, you are the child, you need to listen to me no matter what, and it's my decisions or get out. Because this is the ego and arrogance, and it's not going to produce a child that is making good decisions based on their own wisdom. So each time they make a good decision and they see the good results, they're gonna build wisdom on how to make better and better decisions. Whereas if we try to be controlling parents, they're not learning anything other than mom and dad are going to control me and I want to get out of here as soon as possible. We have a question from Joy. In the human realm, as children, some of us are preyed upon by adults, suffering physical and emotional abuse. Is that why so many of us are the way we are? Isn't it necessary to protect ourselves? So abuse that someone encounters as a child oftentimes get held onto in the mind. And the mind holds on to this trauma and this abuse. And then as someone grows, yeah, they can be very defensive, very protective. They can even start to hate other human beings, thinking that this one situation with mom and dad or Uncle Bob or Aunt Sue or whoever it was in your life or other people's lives that caused us harm or abused us, the mind, the unenlightened mind, thinks this is permanent. They think because of these years of abuse by one particular person or two or three people, the mind associates that abuse towards all people. This is the unenlightened mind craving permanence. What you've got to get to is you've got to realize that that was that one situation, that one experience, and 
uncondition the mind to be fearful, which we're going to talk about next week, to be fearful of other human beings. So you've got to let go of these experiences and particularly traumatic experiences and abuse so that the mind can come into its own where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Because if it holds on to these experiences from the past and it looks at other people as being bad or it has this outlook on other people as being bad, then you're going to have a really hard time to have healthy relationships with other people because there's this self and this holding on to these traumatic experiences of the past. So this is why in meditation and throughout our day, we're always training the mind to be in the present moment and not hold on to these traumatic experiences from the past so the mind can kind of come into its own to this natural state of enlightenment where it's no longer holding on to this traumatic abuse from the past. We have a question from Judith. I have heard there are some people who consistently behave as intraspecies predators. So should we just screen them and try to be safe, but avoid wallowing in too many feelings and judging? Does Buddhism have a different view on this type of behavior? So if people are being predators and trying to prey on you, you know, you have the ability to make decisions to not be part of that situation and not be part of that relationship. And that would be very wise. So one of the things that the Buddhist teachings are doing for you is it's teaching you how to train your mind and improve the condition of your mind. But also when you encounter other people and you see certain aspects of their mind that are problematic, you might choose to not be around that person. But you need to do it without anger and hostility and still have loving kindness and compassion without judging the person putting yourself above or below. So if you've got somebody that has all kinds of arrogance and all kinds of egotistical behavior and, you know, they're just looking down on you and disparaging you and talking badly to you, there's no problem with you choosing not to be around that person. But you should do that without making yourself feel that you're so much better than them or that you're arrogant yourself. So making a wise decision with discernment. So discernment would be wise decision making to choose to no longer be around this person. That's fine. You can choose to be around certain people that you would like to be around, but don't put up a wall and push this away with hostility and anger in through judgment. Otherwise, now your mind is still got conceit where you have arrogance, pride, judging, measuring and comparing yourself to be superior. So you can choose not to be around people because you feel that their behavior is not something that you would choose to be around, but you've got to do that with loving kindness and compassion and know for yourself that you're not judging them and putting yourself above them. And by the way, this would be their gamma. This would be the results of their decisions. If they're arrogant and egotistical and prideful and judging and making their self feel superior to you all the time and you choose to not be around them over time they're going to have less and less people around them and if they would like to have friends they're going to have to learn to stop being so arrogant and stop being so superior so that is actually good sometimes for that person that they see that you know people aren't comfortable being around them So that's a fine decision if you choose to not be around people 
better that way, but you have to ensure that you're doing it without putting up this wall because what the unenlightened mind wants to do because of that second poison of hatred, anger, ill will, or we also call it aversion, is anything that's displeasing, you want to immediately push it away. And you want to immediately push it away, erect this wall, they're bad, I'm perfect, I'm better than them, and wants to push you away. So that would be detrimental to your practice. But observing what's going on, seeing the true reality, what's happening, and just choosing not to be around it, but stepping away with loving kindness and compassion would be the way to do it. And one of the tests that you can give to yourself is if you're really stepping away with loving kindness and compassion is ask yourself if this person showed up at your front door and needed food or needed gas for their car, what would you do? Would you slam the door in their face? Would you tell them to get away? You don't want to see them anymore? This is aversion. This is hatred, anger, ill will, aversion. Whereas if you're like, no, 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 I'd still be friends with this person. I would help them. I would give them a warm jacket if they were cold outside. I would help them. Then you know that, okay, then you're not stepping away with hatred, anger, ill will, and aversion. You're just choosing out of wise decision making not to be around this type of conduct. And that's fine. We have a question from George. How should we receive compliments? For example, you are a fantastic teacher, teacher David. We're going to talk about that towards the end using the Buddha's words. But just to kind of preview it a bit, if you allow a compliment of somebody to incite pride in you, then that's going to be detrimental for your mind because the ego is going to wrap around that and now it's going to be boastful. It's going to be arrogant. You know, I'm such a wonderful teacher. I'm so great. I'm better than anybody. And if I said those kind of things to people, you wouldn't find very many students being interested to learn with you, right? You wouldn't find very many people that are interested in being your friend or being around you because you're so boastful and so prideful. So when I hear somebody give me a compliment, in my mind, I register it and I think like, okay, that's nice. I'm glad to see that they're getting benefit from the teachings that I'm sharing, but it's almost like it goes in one ear and out the other. I don't allow it to affect the mind. I don't allow the ego to wrap around that because if I do, then that's dangerous and detrimental for my mind. So I just let it go, just like everything else. If somebody says to me, David, you're such a great teacher, I say, I'm glad I'm able to help you. Or I might say something like, the Buddhist teachings are so wonderful, aren't they? Redirect it to the Buddha. Or I'll often say, like, if somebody says, David, you're such a great teacher. Well, these are the teachings of the fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. He was the fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. So I'm glad you're benefiting from his teachings, right? So I'm never absorbing that comment or that praise and allowing my mind to wrap around it. I'm just either redirecting it or just somehow otherwise letting it go and not holding on to it myself because there is no self. There's no reason to hold on. It's nice to hear compliments, but I don't look for them. I don't try to create these situations where people give me praise because I don't need that praise in order to continue to do what it is that I'm doing. I will continue to share these teachings regardless of anybody ever offering any bit of praise because I don't do this for praise. 
I don't do this because I'm trying to create some pleasant feelings in my mind. I know that I'm sharing these teachings because it's beneficial to the world. And that's the only reason why I'm doing this. So my mind isn't looking for that next praiseful comment to create some kind of pride or arrogance that then I walk around with a puffed out chest and a chip on my shoulder thinking that I'm the best teacher that this world's ever seen, right? So it's better to practice being humble and being peaceful. So don't allow any kind of praise that comes from other people about anything. Don't allow that to affect your mind because that's going to produce pleasant feelings, that happiness, that excitement, that elation. And if you allow that to happen, then when you don't get the praise that the mind's looking for, it's going to be sad. It's going to be angry. It's going to be irritated or frustrated. So if you allow the mind to latch on to these prideful, praiseful comments, then you're setting yourself up to fail that at some point it's going to be sad or frustrated or irritated or angry when you don't get what the mind wants. We have a question from Michael. Can you explain more about personal existence view? What else do you want to know, Michael? (laughs) We're actually going to be discussing this in about two months. I'm going to do a special class that's not on the current agenda. And the special class, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all 10 fetters and I'm going to teach you exactly what each individual fetter is and how to actually eliminate it through your practice. So I think that might be a better time to talk more about the self. But if you have specific questions, then ask me what those are. and We can dive into it more deeply, either here in class or online in the Facebook group or in a personal discussion. But just know that in about two months, we're going to go through this in a lot more detail. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay, so let's go to the next part of what I had prepared to share with you guys, which is the ego stands in the way of seeing true reality. When you've got this ego in the mind where it thinks there's an actual self here, there's this self-image and this self-identity, or you've got this conceit where it's arrogant, it's prideful, it's judging and measuring other people, then the mind can't see true reality of what's going on in the world because there's this pollution of the ego standing in the way. And what oftentimes will happen is the ego will project itself onto other people. And then you will read that as coming from them. In reality, it's coming from you. So for example, if you're sitting in a meeting and somebody walks in and they happen to be dressed pretty nice, they have a nice hairdo or they have some nice clothes and you think right away, huh, look at this person trying to look so handsome, trying to look so beautiful. Huh, look at her. Don't she think she's special? Doesn't he think he's special? Right? Well, that person hasn't done anything. They just walked into the room. They haven't said or done anything yet. Those feelings that you're having are your perceptions. That's actually coming from you. You're the one that wants to look so beautiful or so handsome. You're the one that thinks you're so special. And you're projecting that onto that other person that just happened to walk in the room. And because you're projecting your ego onto them, 
you're now reading it like a mirror. You're getting this reflection back. And you're like, huh, look at them. They think they're so special. Walking in with that high dollar suit, that expensive jewelry, and their hair's done up so nice. They think they're so special. This is that measuring and comparing. This is the judging. This is the ego projecting itself onto other people and reading it as if it's coming from them. So you're not seeing true reality in that situation. You're actually seeing your own mind projecting itself onto the other person. Because all that's actually happened is somebody walked into the room. You're the one that's judging the fact that they look nice or they look beautiful or they look handsome or they have nice clothes. You're judging, you're measuring and comparing. And now because your ego is affected, you're trying to put yourself above them. You're trying to put that self above them because of your self identity and your self image. You want to be above them, but you're judging them and you think and feel that they are above you. So your ego is kind of like working on itself and trying to put itself above other people because there it feels good. There the ego feels good. Ah, there's those pleasant feelings again. This beautiful person, this handsome person just walked in. I don't like that. I'm the one who wants to be beautiful. I'm the one who wants to be handsome. I've got to be above that person. So the ego is going to immediately try to judge the other person, look down on them, and then put yourself above them. And this is the ego doing its thing. And now when that person walks in and smiles at you or says hello, you have trouble just smiling back or saying hello back. Or now in this business meeting, when the person comes up with an idea that could be a very good idea, your ego doesn't like that. And you've got to bash this idea just because your ego is trying to be above them rather than just viewing all people as normal and seeing true reality, which is somebody just walked into the room. Why does my mind have to be discontent and put myself above this person when they just walked into the room? No big deal, right? There's no reason to measure and compare or judge this person and have arrogance that you're above them. And conversely, there's no reason for you to put yourself below them. Because if you put yourself below them, at any point in time, the ego might kick in with arrogance and try to put yourself above them. And now in conversation and in your relationship, not only does it affect you and that person being able to have a good relationship, but when other people in there in the room and they see your arrogance and ego coming out, they don't like what you're doing either. And this affects you. So the only way to solve all of this is to just eliminate all this measuring, comparing, judging, this arrogance or putting yourself below people and just see true reality, which is this is another human being. Let me be friendly. Let me be polite. Let me be kind. Let me be respectful, right? That's the only answer in that situation. Anything else is just baggage that you're pulling in based on your experiences that are collected in the mind that we call the ego. So when you observe the ego projecting itself onto other people and you're reading this reflection and you think that other person is so bad or so miserable or so horrible, right away you're judging somebody. So it's actually your ego 
right? So you've got to identify that, that the ego is projecting itself onto others and it's causing you problems because that judgment is your own ego. You attempting to judge others and measuring compare is your own ego and you've got to get rid of that. So don't feel guilty. Don't feel shameful. Don't beat yourself up that this is going on. Just recognize it for what it is that is coming from you. It's not coming from the other person because the other person hasn't even said anything. They just walked in the room. They haven't even said anything. It's coming from you. This is your judgment. This is your perceptions of the other person. So recognize it for what it is and just eliminate it. You can almost look at the ego as like a third entity. Just be like, you know what? Get out of here. I don't need you. I don't need you around. You're making my life difficult. Get out of here, <laughs> right? Evict this ego out of the mind, right? Like sign a, a letter and be like, I'm evicting you. Get out of here, right? Because you don't need this ego around anymore. They're just causing problems. Get them out of here, right? Stop allowing the ego to judge people. Because what happens is you develop certain perceptions of situations or other people and you start attempting to look at how others are wrong and you're right. This is how the ego works. The ego wants to be so intelligent. It wants to be boastful. It wants to be arrogant. And it wants to look at how everyone else is wrong and you're right. That's the arrogant side of the ego. But then there's that other aspect that can be just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, where you think everyone else is right and you're wrong. And you put yourself in a disparaging situation as being inferior to other people. Well, these perceptions that you're accumulating in the mind are based on certain situations that you've encountered in the past, certain experiences that you've had. This is a collection of those experiences in the mind that is now causing you to look at people as right or wrong or good or bad. And the ego wants to label people and it wants to label situations so that the mind can kind of feel, all right, there's this pecking order and where am I in the pecking order? And the mind looks for that permanent place in the pecking order. So now it's like, ah, now I can feel fine because I know I'm above this person. But you've got to get to the point where you're just like, I'm nobody, I'm nothing. I'm okay to just be a nobody and a nothing. And I'll just share my ideas. I'll share my perspective in this business meeting. I'll share my opinions. And if people find that valuable, they find that helpful, great, wonderful. If someone else has a better idea and people feel like this other idea is better than what I'm sharing, that's fine too. Because the goal is, is for us as a team to come out of this meeting with some decisions that we can all stand behind and we can all work towards. It doesn't have to be my idea. I'm just going to share my thoughts and the thoughts that I'm having, but ultimately it's a group decision, right? So you've got to eliminate these perceptions of certain situations, of certain people, eliminate this judgment and this measuring and comparing as right and wrong and trying to label everything of good, bad, right, wrong, okay? Not only does the ego project its unwholesome qualities 
of arrogance and pride and judgment on other people and read those unwholesome qualities as coming from those other people when in fact it's coming from you, the ego also projects wholesome qualities on other people. And then it craves permanence, expecting that others should be the same as you. And what happens is the mind attempts to kind of go out and control people and trying to get them to do the same things as you. Because the ego thinks that it's perfect. The ego thinks there's nothing wrong with you. And the ego wants everybody to be the same as you. This is the unenlightened mind craving permanence, that craving desire attachment. So now what happens is Amina with children is the parents think that I've got all the right answers. I've been in this life for 30, 40, 50 years. My child's 10 years old. They don't know nothing. They don't know anything. They got to listen to me, right? That's the ego. Rather than realizing that your child's going to have all new, unique experiences, some things you're going to be able to contribute to and help them and give them wisdom to improve their life and improve their decision making. But also they're going to discover things on their own that perhaps you didn't think about and they may end up teaching you a few things, even as a young child, right? So the other part of this projection is the ego doesn't only project unwholesome qualities on others, it projects these wholesome qualities that you think are so great about your life. And now not only your children, but your parents, your coworkers, your friends, family, different people in your community, you're projecting your wholesome qualities on others and expecting that everyone should do it the same way as you, rather than the mind recognizing the uniqueness of each individual, recognizing the impermanence of each individual, that everybody has their own unique individual thoughts, ideas, and opinions, and value those as part of the wisdom that we have as a family, or as a business, or as a team, or as a community, value all these opinions and listen and understand so that now we can come up with a better solution because everyone's contributed to it. But if the ego's in there and the ego just thinks that it knows everything and it's so right and it's projecting these wholesome qualities onto everyone else, expecting that everyone has to be generous Everyone has to have loving kindness. Everyone has to be compassionate. Everyone has to be respectful. And this is the only way to exist in the world. Then you're craving permanence, and this is going to lead to discontentedness. When you see that somebody doesn't have compassion, or like what Joy was saying, if you see somebody's harming somebody else through their speech and their actions, now you're going to judge that because they're not maybe as far along in awakening or they're not even on the path. They're not as far along as you might be. And now you look down on them and think that they're bad and you're good. And now the mind will go around and try to control all these people and you're causing yourself discontentedness. And those people aren't going to feel comfortable being around you because now you're trying to control them. So a better approach would be to just recognize that that's the ego trying to project these wholesome qualities on others. That's the mind craving permanence, expecting certain things of other people. 
That's the ego judging, comparing, measuring, being prideful of all the things you've accomplished, expecting other people to do those same things. Just recognize that for what it is and get rid of it. Your practice is your practice. What other people choose to do in their life, it's their choice. There's nothing in this life that we should be projecting either our wholesome qualities or our unwholesome qualities on other people. Because if we're projecting what people should and shouldn't be doing in the world, now we're trying to control the world and we're craving things to be a certain way. You've got to lay things out in a way that people can make good wholesome choices. Not only do you see this on an individual level, but you also see this at a country level too, right? There's lots of different countries in the world and depending on the ego of the leaders in those countries, one particular country might feel that everyone else should be exactly like us, right? People in that one country might feel like, you know what, we're the best country in the world. We do everything correct. We've got the best economy. We're so great. We're so wonderful. Everyone should be just like us. This has caused a lot of fear in the world, and this has caused a lot of war in the world. And because of this, the ego can actually project itself not only on an individual level, but at a country level. And it can start to try to control all the various countries in the world. And if there's a country out there doing this, it's coming from individuals. There's no such thing as Canada, America, Mexico, Brazil, Thailand. These things are just labels assigned to a particular landmass and a particular group of people. So if a particular group of people in a country has ego and they're projecting that ego, those things that they feel are good and wholesome, if they're projecting it onto another country and feel that all those people in that country should be the same as their country, there's been wars that have been started and many millions of people killed because of this, right? Think back to the time of Hitler. Hitler was this way, right? Hitler felt like everybody should be just like his image of what he felt a perfect society should be. His mind was craving permanence and killed millions of people because of this, right? This is the ego projecting what the ego perceives as wholesome qualities onto other people and trying to convince and control people to do things that way. But in reality, those wholesome qualities are just perceptions. What you feel is wholesome and what other people feel is wholesome is completely different. So even though the ego is trying to project this wholesome qualities onto other people, just the action of projecting your wholesome qualities onto other people is an unwholesome quality. <laughs> it's an unwholesome quality to project wholesome qualities on other people and expect that everybody should do things the same way as you, right? You've got to allow people to make the choice through their own personal decisions. So the ego serves no wholesome purpose, whether it's projecting unwholesome qualities or whether it's projecting wholesome qualities there's no benefit to either side of that because this practice isn't about projecting things to other people and trying to convince them and control them to do things our way. 
What this practice is about is focusing on your own mind, not trying to control and change this outside external world, but letting go of this external outside world and looking inward and just focusing on inner fulfillment and inner contentment, irregardless of what everybody else in the world is doing. Because if you attach your contentedness based on other speech and actions, then that means you have to train 7.5 billion people in the world to do things your way. Good luck with that, right? Good luck with that. What you've got to do is you've got to look inward and say, you know what, this is just the ego thinking that you're so perfect and you're so wonderful and what you're doing is what everyone else should be doing. And get rid of that ego so that you can then reside with a mind that's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, unattached to what everyone else is doing around you. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. So we have a question from Deborah. She asks, David, is confidence the same as ego? Confidence to me and ego are two different things. Confidence can become ego, or if there's too much confidence, it can be ego. There needs to be this stability in the mind that you know what you know without being attached to it, without holding it so tightly that if somebody else tries to influence you, that you react with hostility. So for example, I was in a recent conversation online with somebody. They saw a post that I wrote and I was explaining enlightenment and how enlightenment is the elimination of all discontent feelings where you eliminate sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, boredom, loneliness, all this other stuff. And this person said, that's impossible. You can't ever eliminate sadness. The Buddha didn't teach you to not eliminate sadness and anger. He taught you just don't let it affect you. He never taught to eliminate it entirely. Well, I know that's not true. So when this person was saying this, they said it and I shared some opinions back and forth, but ultimately they just couldn't take the fact that what I was sharing was opposite of their opinion. And they really went ballistic and they went berserk. But for me, I have confidence. I have stability of mind. I know the truth 100% because I experience what I experience and I know other people have experienced it too. So I have the wisdom to know and my mind is confident and stable of what the Buddha actually taught to eliminate these aspects of the mind. So when this person said what they said, it didn't affect me. I didn't become angry or hostile. I just had concern for their misfortune. I had active goodwill. I had loving kindness, right? I had loving kindness and compassion for them because here's a person that really truly believes that they understand the Buddhist teachings when in reality they just don't understand it at all. And that's not with arrogance. That's not with me measuring, comparing, or judging them. That's just me recognizing like, it's unfortunate they don't understand. And that's okay. I can step away from this conversation without feeling the desire to convince them. I can step away from this conversation without feeling this need to control their thoughts and opinions. I can step away from this conversation without having hostility and anger and just say, hmm, it's unfortunate. They don't understand. But they're not at a place in their life 
to ask questions and seek guidance and try to understand what are the true teachings. And I need to be comfortable to just step away from that and just let them be. So to me, that's confidence, that there's stability of mind, there's wisdom, I understand the truth, I understand what true reality is, but I'm not allowing that to get to the point where it's ego, where I look down on this person, where I'm arrogant and egotistical with them, because that's going to be detrimental to the relationship. So confidence to me is just kind of being sure And the way that you do that is you understand the truth and you have wisdom. I'm still willing to listen to somebody else, whatever they think, whether it's about the Buddhist teachings or anything else, I'm willing to listen and I can sit there and listen and I can sit there and understand, but then I can see where their logic is very flawed in what they're actually sharing. And when I see that flawed logic, then I can try to help them understand it, but ultimately if they're not in a position to understand it, then I have to remain unattached. Otherwise my mind's going to be discontent. So you can get to that confidence when you understand the truth and wisdom, for example, in the Buddhist teachings, or let's just say you're an accountant and you've studied accounting and you've been an accountant for 20 years and you just know without a doubt that this is the way that you keep the books and it's always done this way and this is the way it's it's going to be because this is the law and this is the way your country does accounting. Well, if somebody comes in and tries to convince you otherwise, then if you have confidence, then you can calmly, patiently, politely, respectfully help them see where this is the way to do accounting here in this country and in this company. And you can do it patiently and calmly. Whereas if you have ego and you start being arrogant with them, you think you're right. Like, that's not right. Nobody in this entire country does it this way. Where did you get that crazy idea from? Right. This is the arrogance, the ego coming out. And now you can't logically approach this person in a discussion and help them see true reality and help them see the truth. Whereas if you remain humble and you listen to what they have to say, and then say, I understand where you're coming from. Would you like to understand my thoughts on this topic? And now when they say, sure, then you can politely explain your thoughts on this topic. And that's going to lead to a better result. And you can do this with confidence, but without arrogance or ego. We discussed recently, David, how one of the main differences between animals and humans is that as humans, we have the ability to cultivate our consciousness deliberately. So then, we have the ability to deliberately take decisions that work to dissolve the ego, but can this also work the other way? Can, as humans, we maybe um, have a risk of maybe cultivating more of an ego if we don't see the danger in doing so more perhaps than animals do, even though the ego does come from the animal existence? The ego comes from this collection of experiences. You know, the self comes from the animal existences, but we maintain it in this human realm. The conceit, the arrogance comes from our experiences in this world. So if you're always around people that are 
telling you how wonderful and how great you are, and you allow that to come into the mind, then you're going to feel boastful. And that's coming from this life. So you have to be able to see that for what that is, that this arrogance, this measuring, comparing, this judging, this placing yourself above or below people isn't beneficial for you. That in conversations where you do that or in relationships where you do that, it's going to lead to unwholesome results. So that ego that's boasting you up and making you feel so prideful or that part of the ego that's making you feel low and feel miserable, there's no purpose for this in the mind, in this human realm. And when you see that for what it is, that there is no wholesome purpose to this conceit or this self, then now you can identify it when it arises and you can actively work to eliminate it so that the mind can then have better outcomes in relationships that you have. All right. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at the moment. Okay. So now that you understand what the ego is, now that you understand how it's causing problems, because you're not going to be able to see true reality here, right? If this ego is in the way, it's polluting things. It's projecting unwholesome and wholesome qualities onto others. Reading that is coming from them. And when you project this on other people and you read it coming from them, now it inhibits you from having open relationships where you can benefit from other people's ideas, other people's thoughts, other people's opinions. By you judging other people and putting yourself above or below them, now you can't have just a normal conversation with them. The mind is either wanting to be above or below people. By you having these perceptions of a certain situation or having certain perceptions of other people based on previous experiences that you had, now you're prejudging this situation or this experience. So if you've had a certain problem with, let's just say you were in Thailand and let's just say a taxi driver charged you more money than they were supposed to. Now, every single taxi driver that you get in through their taxi in Thailand, you have this bit of judgment and arrogance, and now you treat that person with hostility, it's gonna lead to problems for you. So your accumulated experiences in other parts of your life, throughout your life, if you allow the mind to hold onto those permanently, and now you bring them into new relationships, now you're allowing that to affect your mind, and you're not seeing true reality that this taxi driver just stopped, offered you a ride, and you got in and chose to take a ride with them. But if every single moment you're looking at the meter and just so concerned that this taxi driver is going to do something problematic because the driver from two days ago did, now your mind is neurotic and it can't rest and be peaceful in this moment because it's holding on to your perceptions of what happened in the past. So you've got to let go of these past experiences because it's inhibiting you from seeing true reality that you just had a taxi driver that stopped and offered you a ride. Or there's a person who walked into the meeting. There's just a person who walked into the meeting. You judging that they've got nice clothes, they've got nice hair, they've got nice makeup, nice jewelry, that's all you're judging and comparing that's going to inhibit you from having an open relationship and seeing true reality that a person just walked into the room. 
So this ego stands in the way of you seeing true reality. And in order for you to see true reality, you've got to get to dissolving this self and dissolving this conceit in order for you to just see true reality and make decisions in the present moment. So here are some suggestions of how you can dissolve the ego. So the things that you can do in order to practice dissolving the ego. Say thank you often. When you're around people and people do things, just say thank you. Use the words thank you and use that often. Do things like sleeping on the floor. This is probably one of the single most helpful things that I think that you will find to help dissolve the ego. It sounds different. It might sound odd. It might sound silly if you're judging it, right? If you're judging it, it might sound stupid, right? But just the act of sleeping on the floor in a low position will help you to eliminate ego because every time you go to bed, you're going to have to get down on the floor. You're going to have to get down into bed. And when you get out of bed in the morning, you have to get up out of bed, right? So you're always going down into bed and you're always coming up out of bed. Or if you're going to the bathroom throughout the night, you're going to have to keep getting up over and over and over again. This is going to help produce humbleness in the mind, that the mind is humble. The Buddha taught this as part of his teachings, is to sleep in a low position. And a lot of times people don't understand why. The reason why is because it helps to empty the ego. Whereas if you sleep in this really high position with all these plush fabrics and this really thick mattress and all these pillows around you, all this luxury, and you sleep in that position, the mind is going to cultivate this arrogance and ego, thinking that you are above all of these other people in the world because the mind is always trying to be comfortable because it's trying to put the body in this comfortable, luxurious position and the mind is only content or peaceful when it's in this super luxurious position. But what you've got to train the mind to do is to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy no matter what position you're in whether you're in a high position or you're in a low position. So if you create the situation where your bed is either like really low or you literally sleep on the floor, this can be very, very helpful. You'll feel a lot of stability come into the mind. It'll take several weeks, but it will feel better and better all the time when you do this. So you can take your mattress and put it flat on the floor, or you can just get a sleeping pad to sleep on the floor. This will be really, really helpful. Remember, don't believe me. Don't believe anything that I say. Try it and see your experience. And do this consistently throughout your life. If you sleep with a partner, you may have to talk to them a bit and see if they're understanding and are willing to go in this direction. But what you'll find, I'm sure, is that sleeping on the floor is one of the most beneficial things you could ever do to work on dissolving this ego and emptying out that arrogance and conceit. Do tasks that you feel that are beneath you. At one time, I used to always think that like doing laundry was beneath me or washing dishes was beneath me or mopping the floor, things like this. As I 
kind of came up in the world. When I first, you know, was in college and got out of college, of course, I was doing all this stuff for myself. But as I started getting more and more success in the world and I started making more money and I started having more people around me, I got to the point where I always had someone around to clean. I had two different offices. I had a home. I had a couple of different homes. We had maids or we had housekeepers. We had employees. And there was even situations where I would oftentimes pick up a broom or a mop and my employees would say, no, boss, you know, I wouldn't feel comfortable seeing you do that. And they would take it out of my hands. Well, because I wasn't familiar with these teachings at the time, I allowed that to create pride in the mind. And I felt like, wow, look at me. I'm so wonderful. I'm the boss. All these employees won't even let me mop or won't let me sweep. So I started looking and viewing washing dishes, mopping the floor, sweeping as this was below me. I had a lot of money and I could pay people to do these things for me. And if I wasn't paying people to do these for me, I had a girlfriend or a wife or somebody like this around me that would do it for me. I didn't need to do these things. Well, what I did is once I started understanding these teachings and I started looking for this arrogance in my mind, I started realizing that I wasn't washing dishes because I thought it was below me or I wasn't cleaning because I thought it was below me. So then what I did is I applied right effort. I took the effort to do those things and ensure that I was doing those things and doing those regularly. And the more that I did those, the more comfortable the mind got with just realizing like, hey, you're nothing. You're a nobody. Just wash the dishes. You know, everybody should wash dishes. Everybody should sweep the floor. Everybody should vacuum, right? So there was certain things that my mind was willing to do and certain things that I wasn't willing to do. So I, yes, I forced the mind. I applied right effort to do those things that I felt like were beneath me and that I shouldn't be doing. Listen to people teach and share wisdom. The ego is going to think that it's really arrogant. It's going to think that it's perfect. It's going to think that it's so wonderful. So put yourself in a position in situations where you ask people questions and you listen to what they have to say. So you guys do that on a regular basis in these classes. But you can also do that in other situations, too, with your partners, with your coworkers, with your neighbors. I even do this with my son sometimes where I sit him down and I'll ask him to teach me something or, or share something with me. Right. So do this with other people so that you ask questions and you ask them to share some teachings and wisdom with you. And don't judge whether it's good or bad, but just listen to people share wisdom. So the very act of just choosing to accept a teacher and seek out a teacher and ask someone to be your teacher, this can actually be really helpful for the ego. Because by you learning these teachings, you're essentially admitting that you don't know everything and you need help. This is a very helpful aspect of learning these teachings. There's only one person that would be able to attain enlightenment on their own, and that's an actual Buddha, a real life Buddha. And that person to be a Buddha would have had to eliminate their ego. So they already don't have ego, but everyone else needs teachers and guides on this path. So just asking people to share some wisdom with you and you listening and not judging. And while you're listening to what they're saying, 
don't feel like you have to come up over the top of them and show them how smart that you are. Just listen to what they have to say and be like, oh, thank you. I appreciate you sharing with me. And that's it, right? This can be really beneficial for the mind that you can have conversations where you just ask questions, listen to what people have to say, and you have no interest whatsoever to share anything at all. You just hold back any kind of your own sharing. You're just there to listen because the mind's going to want to talk and tell everybody all these wonderful things about you and who you are. The ego is going to want to tell everybody who you are, what you do, and what you're about, right? So by you just asking questions, listening, and not necessarily sharing anything about yourself at all, this allows you to go into a situation where you just listen. And if somebody asks you questions about your life, okay, then you share. But be comfortable with just listening to other people and learning from their wisdom. Another thing that's really powerful, this is part of Thai culture. And you also see this as part of the teachings of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ taught this as well, is washing people's feet. In Thailand, they have a tradition of washing people's feet, where you wash the feet of your parents, your grandparents, maybe even your spouse, your, your life partner. Children will be taught to wash the feet of their parents, their grandparents, even their teachers sometimes, or give flowers to their teachers on certain days. And this is oftentimes done on your birthday, so rather than what we tend to do in Western culture, which is, it's my birthday, where's my gifts? It's all about me, let's have a party, give me gifts, it's all about me, it's my birthday. What Thai people are taught is, on your birthday, go thank your mom and dad for giving you life, because now you have a human life and you have the ability to attain enlightenment. And while you're there, give them some gifts, give them some flowers, and wash their feet right? This is a completely different take on your birthday than anything that we've ever been taught in our life. But try it either on your birthday or on New Year's, which is coming up, Mother's Day, Father's Day. There's times like this throughout the Thai calendar where a lot of Thais are taught to do this three, four, five times a year. And they're not forced to do it. They're not required to do it. If they choose not to do it, Nobody's judging them as if they're wrong or they're bad, but they're taught how to do it growing up. And then if they choose to do it later in life, it's their choice. So if you choose to do this, it's one thing to tell your life partner or your parents. It's one thing to tell them, hey, I love you. But it's a whole nother thing to put actions behind that. And kneeling down on the ground, putting a basin of water under their feet and pouring water on their feet and literally washing their feet, in terms of communicating love and kindness and compassion to another person, this will completely change the way that you feel about this person in the mind. And it will communicate to that person your love in a way that you'll never be able to communicate by words. This is one of the reasons why they do it in Thai culture. This is one of the reasons why Jesus taught it is to humble yourself before other people and also to communicate your love, 
your kindness, your compassion, your respect to other people through touching their feet gently and through pouring water and rubbing their feet. This is a great way to communicate love and kindness to people, but it's also a great way to eliminate the ego, placing yourself above others. You can do this with people that are close to you, which helps to reinforce those feelings of love. But if there's also situations where you can do it with people that you have no association with whatsoever, this can be very powerful as well. So a few years ago, when my wife opened up her business in the city, which she no longer has, but when she opened it, there was nine people who came from America to receive massage at her massage center. And in Thailand, oftentimes before you get a massage, they will wash your feet. Well, the way my wife had her business set up is everybody had to wash their own feet. But when I saw all these people come from America that had never been in Thailand before and they just kind of stood there, they didn't know what to do, I just said, okay, come on over here, I'll wash your feet. And I didn't know these people at all. And I had them sit down one by one and I would wash their feet slowly with soap and water and dry their feet really well. All nine people. I got down on the floor. I got wet because of the water spraying. I humbly washed their feet and this communicated to them like, hey, this guy really cares about you. He's helping to take care of you. But not only was I doing this for them to show them this hospitality of the Thai way and sharing this love and kindness and compassion with them, but it was also helping my mind too, that if there was any ego in there of me thinking I'm so great and wonderful, when you're down on the floor getting wet and you're washing somebody's feet just out of the kindness of your heart, not because you had to do it, not because anybody asked you to do it, but just because it's something you're interested to do, this can be really revolutionary for the mind and improve the condition of the mind. So you may not be in a position where you can wash the feet of somebody that you have no association with, like what I've done in the past, but you may find situations where you can do this. Oftentimes, when monks come to visit you in your house, you can sit them down and wash their feet before they come in, in your home. And this can be really helpful for you, which I had done many times when I invited monks to places in America. I used to wash their feet when they would come into our business or into our home or something like that. So feel free to do this as you like. And again, don't believe me, but try it and experience it for yourself. You can also show respect with people with a why of like whying people, bringing your hands together, palm to palm, and then bowing your head. This is a great way to show respect and gratitude to people. For me, there's security at the front of our village. And every time I go in and out of the village, whether I'm in a car or I'm in a motorbike or I'm walking to 7-Eleven, I always why them and bow my head. If I'm driving a motorbike, I can't put my hands together, so I'll bow my head. And what I notice is the security are always smiling. They always feel joyful when they see me coming. They hurry up and open the gate. The gates like open long before I get there because probably in their mind, you know, on some level, they're like, hey, here comes that respectful guy that's always respecting us. Let's get that gate open for him, right? I don't show respect to them because I want something in return. 
that's just something that I've noticed since I do respect them is that they're always smiling with me. They're always pleasant with me. They're always opening the gate long before I get there. And then sometimes when I go to 7-Eleven, I practice generosity that if I'm buying myself a couple soy milks, I'll buy a couple extra ones for them. And on my way back through the gate, I offer them a couple of soy milks and I give it to them as a little gift. So not only am I whying to them and showing them respect, but I'm also practicing generosity, right? So you can do this kind of thing, not only with, in this case, like security guards, but in my wife's area where she has her business, when I used to go over there all the time, I used to do similar things for the taxi drivers in that area. I used to do things for the other business owners in that area because business owners are always around. As I would walk back from 7-Eleven, I would give them a soy milk or a chocolate bar or something like this, and I would why people. And I would go out of my way when I saw the owner of the restaurant or workers at the restaurant or the place where my wife takes her laundry from her massage shop to get her laundry done. Sometimes I walk by and I just why them and then I keep walking. So this helps your ego to reduce your ego, but it also helps you to build relationships in your community. So your neighbors, you see them out, you smile, you wave, you why. You maybe be generous to them. This is helping your ego, but it's also helping you to let go by practicing generosity. And it helps you to show respect to others, which is going to build relationships between you and other people. So don't hold back your smile. Don't hold back your respect. Let it go. And you, what you'll find is that when you let that go, that people are going to be more and more respectful with you. Another thing you can do is wear very simple clothing. One of the things that we do because of this self and this interest to project the self-image and self-identity is we will oftentimes beautify the body, thinking that this is you, this is the self. So we wear earrings, we wear makeup, we spend all this time on our hair, we cultivate this wardrobe, wearing all these really wonderful clothes and the clothes have to be just right and the makeup and the hair has to be just right before we're willing to go outside because we feel that other people are going to judge us based on our hair or our makeup or our clothes or our jewelry well the reason why you feel that other people are going to judge you is because you judge other people so you've got to get to the point where you're not judging other people and you can walk out into the world with just simple clothes and a simple appearance. It doesn't mean that you always have to do that, but you should work that in for several months where you just don't even care what clothes you wear and you just go outside and you just wear whatever clothes and you don't care if people look at you strange, if they look at you odd or they're judging you because there is no you. Who cares if they look at the body strange who cares if they look at the body in a odd way because that's not you they're not judging you they're not looking at you strange because there is no you they're just looking at the clothes or the physical body that's not you that's not who you are but if in your mind you have this perfect appearance that you're looking to project in the world, then when you go outside, you're going to have to have things just right. So if you can get in the habit 
of just wearing simple beat up clothes or you know even though you may have these other clothes that are now really nice maybe you're used to putting on makeup and you wouldn't dare go outside without makeup go outside without makeup if right now you do a lot of things with your hair and your jewelry go outside without those things and just feel comfortable to exist in the world without those things this will help to reduce that personal existence view that self-identity that self-image i.e what we're calling the ego so work on that and see the benefits to the mind i've got some more things to share with you but i would like to pause here and see if you guys have any questions on any of these that i've shared so far we have no questions at the moment okay let's go on to the next ones the next ones are eliminate any interest to project your personal image one of the things that's very popular nowadays is Facebook and taking selfies and putting all these images of yourself online, right? Well, it doesn't mean that's bad. It doesn't mean that's wrong. We're not judging right or wrong. But if you find yourself that you're doing that often, then you should throttle that back and not do that for a while and get comfortable without projecting your image through all of these personal videos and selfies and things like this and give yourself three to six months of not doing that at all and see how the mind feels not doing that, right? So try that and see what happens. Show generosity, loving kindness, and compassion to all beings, especially people that you don't associate well with. So if there are certain people in your office or your neighborhood that you've had words with in the past and you're holding a bit of hostility or you just don't kind of like this person and you kind of rub the wrong way, that's a person that you need to practice generosity, loving kindness and compassion with, right? Even though six months ago there was some falling out and you don't feel good with the conversation and how things ended, look for ways to practice generosity, loving kindness and compassion towards these people so that you can erode anything that you're holding on to in the mind that's creating this rub. It doesn't mean that you're admitting that you were wrong and they are right. It doesn't mean that you're now putting them up above you or anything else because if they become prideful because of your generosity, loving kindness and compassion, that's their practice. You're not interested in teaching them a lesson, that's not what this practice is about. This practice is about training your mind. So if there's people that you don't associate well with and you're having real struggles and feeling a rub between you and other people, you need to look to those people and practice generosity, loving kindness and compassion so that you can eliminate those aspects of your mind, of your ego, that's feeling like you can't associate with these people because your mind isn't peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. It's only peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy when you're not around people that disagree with you. As long as people agree with you, maybe your mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, but that's not permanent. You need to feel comfortable being around people that don't agree with you. So by you practicing generosity, loving kindness, and compassion around people that you haven't mixed well with in the past, this will train you to associate with others 
well, including those that disagree with you and have different opinions than you. This is going to feel very difficult for you, perhaps at first. You may be reluctant or resistant to it. There may be a wall between you and this other person. If you feel that way, that's even more reason for you to do this. This is even more reason for you to break through that wall because as long as you've got this wall between you and other people, you're not going to get to enlightenment because there's only certain people that you can associate with. And it's those people that agree with you. People that disagree with you, you can't associate with them. So you're never going to get to permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy because you're looking out for people who disagree with you. And as soon as they disagree with you, you push them to the side and say, I don't want them in my life. So you've got to be looking out for these people in your life, whether it's family or friends or what have you, people in your neighborhood that you haven't mixed well with and train the mind to associate with them with generosity, with loving kindness and with compassion. And this will help to break down the ego. Again, even if in the last situation you feel like they were 99.9% wrong about what they did, lower your ego. Don't be arrogant. Just be friendly with this person and break through that wall. This will eliminate that little bit of ego that you're holding on to. Eliminate judging other people. We've already talked about this, you know, this comparing and making yourself superior and inferior. If you're judging others, that means you're probably judging yourself as well. There's a self in there that you're judging and you're having certain expectations that you're feeling like you need to live up to. And as long as you do this with yourself, that means there's a self there and that means you're going to do it with other people. So stop judging yourself and stop judging other people and just look at all people equally as being equal. Be kind and gentle because it's the right thing to do, not because you want something in return. When you see people around, just be kind, polite, and respectful in all situations. I've said this before in other classes, but get past that whole mentality that we're taught in Western culture that people have to earn your respect. You're only going to respect people when they earn your respect which means you're only going to be polite, kind, and friendly when people earn your respect. If you're requiring people to earn your respect, that means there's still judgment there. You're judging others, and you're only going to be respectful if they earn your respect. So you've got to eliminate that. Be kind and gentle because it's the right thing to do in all situations. I already talked about this one a little bit, is ask others advice and just listen. Just listen to things that they've learned in their life without this need of trying to prove anything to that person. Just sit down, talk to people, ask them questions, and just listen, right? This is really helpful for the mind. Help other people without any expectation of anything in return. So you see your neighbor's trash cans out in the middle of the street. Put their trash cans up close to their door to make it easy for them or here winter is coming. Don't just shovel your steps or in front of your house. Go and do some extra shoveling for your neighbors. This can be really helpful. Uh, you see a bunch of 
mail accumulated. Help them and bring their mail to them. Or you see a bunch of newspapers out in front of their house. I don't know if they still do that in America or other places. But if you see people have a bunch of newspapers out in front of their house, move it close to their house. Do things for people to help them without any expectation of return. This is, of course, practicing generosity of letting go of your time, effort, energy, and resources, but it's also going to help you understand this interconnectivity that you feel that it's important and beneficial to help other people. And by you helping other people, this is going to help you to eliminate the ego. This last one is another thing that the Buddha taught as well, which is remove any facial hair or cutting your hair. This can be really, really helpful in order to eliminate the self because we spend a lot of time to do things with our hair, either our head hair or our facial hair, or we also do things like wearing jewelry or wearing perfumes or colognes or makeups. This is all kind of the mind thinking that this physical body is you. It thinks that it is the permanent self. So the mind is going to want to create beautification of the body because it views the body as being you and who you are. So if you can work on this where you cut off all your facial hair or even cut off all your hair, uh, your head hair, or stop wearing jewelry or stop using makeup or perfume or cologne. Do this for three months, six months, a year until you implement enough of these practices to dissolve the ego that you're feeling like the ego is pretty well eliminated. And if then you choose to go back to wearing jewelry or you choose to go back to wearing perfume or you choose to grow your hair back, that's fine. You can do that later. But for a period of time to kind of erode this self and to eliminate this conceit, arrogance, and ego, see if you might be able to eliminate some of these things and see how it affects the mind. And I think what you'll find is that these are very beneficial to the mind to be able to do this. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have. I have a question, David. Could one have abandoned personal existence view but still have an attachment to things like their hair or perfume, things like this. Can these appear under one of the other fetters? No. If somebody spends an exorbitant amount of time in front of a mirror, you can be sure there's a self there. But again, we're not judging that other person, but I'm sharing this information for you, that if you spend a lot of time in front of a mirror, or things have to be just right with your appearance, the physical appearance, before you're willing to go outside, then you know that there's a self there. Right, so in that case, that would suggest an attachment to this idea of self. But could one say, um, still have an attachment to perfume, even if they're not interested in uh, maintaining their image of themselves? And likewise, could one still wear perfume but not be attached to perfume and, and also not have personal existence view. Yeah, so with perfume, this can be associated with the self, but it can also be a central desire as well, which is another one of the fetters. So if you're working on eliminating the self and you stop wearing perfume, this can be helpful for you, but then you also have to look at the central desire too. That is the mind craving this scent 
because of the pleasure that it experiences through the senses. So there's the perfume aspect can apply to the self as well as the sensual desires. We have a question from Joy. She says, so no dyeing the hair, LOL. So I would never tell somebody to do something or not to do something, right? If somebody would like to dye their hair, then that's your personal choice. But what I would encourage you to look at and I would encourage you to experience is try to go for a few months or years without dyeing your hair and see how that feels. And if what you're observing in the mind is you don't like that, that's because of the self and the ego. So you've got to get to a point where you don't dye your hair and you're okay with that. And you're perfectly comfortable roaming about the world without dye. And you might do that for several months or years. And then if you choose to go back to it at some point, but you feel like you've now gotten comfortable where the mind is peaceful in the world, not dyeing your hair, then if you choose to go back to it, then that's a personal choice. So I'm not going to say like everyone's got to stop dyeing their hair because that's like a rule. What I'm sharing is guidance that if you do dye your hair, you've got to uncover why you're really doing that. And you've got to get to the point where you feel comfortable going out into the world without dyeing your hair and being comfortable with that. Because otherwise, you're holding on to this self-image and projecting this image and the mind's only content when there's dye. So if you notice that when you're out and about and you're like, oh my goodness, there's a gray hair. I got to hurry up and go home and dye it. That's discontentedness. That's the craving. That's the self holding on and you're feeling awkward if you're outside and you see a little bit of gray hair. So you've got to let that go in order to let this self go. And the way to do that is to let go of the dye for six months or a year and feel comfortable going out into the world with the natural hair. And if you do that, you'll see that it will help train the mind to eliminate this ego. We have a question from Javier. I consider growing a beard less caring than shaving every day. Is it better to shave? You can try both ways. So if you're not sure, this is where you've got to practice. So you know what it feels like to grow a beard and have a beard. So if you've had that beer for five years or so, now just shave it. Shave it and see how you feel in the world without a beard. Do you look in the mirror and like be concerned? Are you concerned about people looking at you strange when you go outside? When people see you and they're like, oh, you look so silly without a beard, Javier. Why'd you do that? Does that hurt your mind? Does that cause discontentedness? Or when you go outside and people are like, wow, Javier, you're so much more handsome without the beard. Do you allow that to create pride in the mind? So this is where mindfulness comes into play. Because remember that path to enlightenment, that seventh step is mindfulness or awareness of mind. So rather than just assume that you don't have a self and you consider it that when you grow the beard, that's being less caring about your personal image rather than assume that because the ego will oftentimes trick you. Cut it and see how you feel. Go out into the world and see how you feel and see if what you think is in the mind is actually true or not. And the only way that you'll know this is if you cut it 
And then if you have awareness of mind with mindfulness, when you go out in the world and you see how you feel, are you hanging around the mirror? Are you looking for somebody to tell you that you look good to kind of reaffirm what you did here? Are you looking to bolster your confidence and by somebody telling you you look good, it makes you feel good? Or can you cut your beard and just go out and not care whether people like it or whether they don't like it? Right. So you've got to test it and see for yourself. This is why you can't judge somebody that has a beard as being okay. They don't have a self or they do have a self. And you can't judge somebody who shaves as saying, oh, they must not have a self because they don't have a beard. So this isn't about everybody doing everything exactly the same way. It's about challenging the mind, testing the mind, doing things, and then be honest with the mind through awareness of mind to see how the mind exists in the world without this beard that you've now had for a while. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay. So this is the last thing I'm going to share, and it's regarding the Buddha's teachings. This is actually the words of the Buddha. And I'm interested in sharing this with you because I think it really will help you understand a lot here. So this is titled, Gain, Honor, and Praise Are an Obstacle Even for an Arahant. Okay? An Arahant is somebody who's enlightened. Okay, so the title of this is Gain, Honor, and Praise Are an Obstacle Even for an Arahant. Bhikkhus, Gain, Honor, and Praise, I say, are an obstacle even for a bhikkhu who is an Arahant, one with taints destroyed. When this was said, the Venerable Ananda, asking the Master Teacher Gautama, Why, Venerable Sir? Are gain, honor, and praise an obstacle even for a bhikkhu with taints destroyed? I do not say, Ananda, that gain, honor, and praise are an obstacle to the unshakable liberation of mind, but I say they are an obstacle to his attainment of those pleasant dwellings in this very life which are achieved by one who dwells diligent, ardent, and resolute. So dreadful, Ananda, are gain, honor, and praise, so bitter, vile, obstructive, to the achieving the unsurpassed security from bondage. Therefore, Ananda, you should train yourselves thus. We will abandon the arisen gain, honor, praise, and we will not let the arisen gain honor and praise persist obsessing our mind thus you should train yourself okay let's go through this so you can understand it okay bhikkhus gain honor and praise this is saying students you know this gain honor and praise people praising you i say are an obstacle for a bhikkhu, for a student, who is an arahant, one who's attained enlightenment, one with taints destroyed. The taints are the fetters. So someone who has all 10 fetters eliminated is an arahant. They are enlightened. So the Buddha is saying, gain honor and praise are an obstacle for them. So then 
his closest student, Ananda, this is the person who was with him during his lifetime. It was actually his cousin. It was, he was with him from the very beginning all the way to the end. His closest student says to him, Master Teacher Gotama, why, venerable sir, are gain, honor, and praise an obstacle even for a student with the fetters destroyed, with the taints destroyed? Because if they're already enlightened, how can it be an obstacle if they're already enlightened, right? This is what Ananda's asking him. They're already enlightened. How could this be an obstacle? So the Buddha clarifies. He says, I do not say, Ananda, that gain, honor, and praise are an obstacle to his unshakable liberation of mind. So if his mind's already liberated, if he's already destroyed the taints, if he's already eliminated the ten fetters, his mind's already unshakable. It's already liberated. So the Buddha is saying, I'm not saying it's an obstacle for his unshakable mind because his mind is already unshakable. It's already liberated. It's already enlightened. But I say they are an obstacle to his attainment of, right? His attainment of that he will not be able to attain this mental state what the Buddha calls it, he says, those pleasant dwellings, those pleasant dwellings are enlightenment because the mind is so peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's quite pleasant to have a liberated mind, an unshakable mind. It's quite pleasant because you never experience sadness, anger, frustration, guilt, shame, boredom, loneliness, resentment, jealousy. You never experience any of that. So it's quite a pleasant dwelling. So what the Buddha is saying is, I didn't say it's an obstacle to his unshakable liberation of mind because his mind's already liberated. What I'm saying is it's an obstacle to his attainment of those pleasant dwellings. So you won't be able to get to enlightenment in this very life if the mind is not diligent, ardent, and resolute. It needs to be diligent and it needs to recognize that so dreadful are gain, honor, and praise, so bitter, vile, and obstructive to achieving the unsurpassed security from bondage. Unsurpassed security from bondage is the liberated mind, is enlightenment, because the mind is bound up in this craving anger, ignorance, the self, and the ego. So the unsurpassed security from bondage is enlightenment, that it's beyond this, right? So gain, honor, and praise are so bitter, vile, and obstructive that you won't be able to get past this. Your mind is going to continue to be bound up in this craving, desire, attachment, the self, and the ego. Then he goes on here and he says, Therefore, Ananda, you should train yourself. We will abandon the arisen gain, honor, and praise. So any gain, honor, and praise that arises in the mind, any pride that arises in the mind, abandon it. Abandon that and let it go. And we will not allow 
that arisen gain honor and praise to obsess our mind right so don't obsess over wanting and craving and desiring this gain that i always got to gain something i always got to get better and better and better. I always got to gain something. I'm looking for people to honor me and respect me. And everyone's got to respect me and honor me, right? I've got to get this praise. If I don't get this praise from my teacher or my parents or my boss, then I don't feel well inside. What the Buddha is essentially saying here is just do things the right way because it's the right way to do things. Don't look for this gain, honor, and praise because it's going to obsess your mind. You're always going to be looking for this external satisfaction and your mind is going to be obsessing about it over and over and over. So you've got to abandon this and just do things that are right because it's the right thing to do. This will help you to eliminate the ego if you understand this and practice this. So I'm not sure if you guys have questions on this, but do you have any questions on this? Thanks, David. I think we're all clear at the moment. Okay. We're getting a little bit far in our class. So I will, in today's class then, because I see that we're almost two and a half hours with this last thing that I shared at the beginning, but I will end the class with this as well, which is we must always and forever develop our practice to eliminate the ego and never assume it has been extinguished. So you always need to be actively working to eliminate this self, this personal existence view. You always need to be working to eliminate this conceit where the mind wants to put itself above and below people, where it wants to judge, compare, and measure. Don't ever assume that any of that is gone. Just wherever you see it crop up, extinguish it, eliminate it. Because the ego is very crafty, very tricky, and very skillful. The ego is going to try to convince you that you're more enlightened than you really are. You're going to start progressing on this path, gaining wisdom, meditating, the mind is going to start to awaken and it's going to start feeling really good. You're going to start feeling concentration. You're going to start feeling focus. You're going to start having clarity of thought. You're going to be able to start having this great memory where you can memorize things very easily. You're going to start being in conversations where you say the simplest little thing and people are like, oh my goodness, that is so wise, James. Wow, you are so smart. Or joy, wow, where did you learn that from? That is so profound. And in your mind, it was just like one simple sentence. And the tendency is for the ego to be like, ha, 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 look at me. I'm on this Buddhist path and I'm getting close to enlightenment. Well, if you do that and you allow the mind to become prideful, it's very bitter. It's very vile. It's very obstructive to the mind and to your liberation. So you can't allow this ego to convince you that you're so great, that you're so special, and you're so wonderful. You need to always and forever develop your practice that wherever you see that ego crop his head up, you cut it off. Don't ever assume that that ego's gone. 
get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it. So if someone ever asked me, David, do you have ego? I wouldn't say yes, and I wouldn't say no. I would say, it's up to you. If you judge me as having ego, then I have ego. If you feel like I don't have ego, then I don't have ego. It's up to you. I have no perspective or no opinion whether I do or I don't have ego. Because I'm not going to say, yes, I have ego, because I know I've been actively working to eliminate it more and more and more all the time. But I'm not going to say, no, I don't have ego. Because as soon as I say that, I know that's the ego speaking because the ego wants me to believe that he's gone. Because as soon as I believe that he's gone, he's going to crop his head up and start being arrogant and egotistical with people. And then it's going to hinder my relationships. So if I think, no, I don't have ego, then I have ego. So I'm not interested in saying yes or no. It's up to you if I have ego or not up to you. To me, I'm never going to assume that the ego is gone. And wherever I see even the slightest little hint of what I think to be ego, I'm going to cut it and let it go. Or if somebody tells me, David, I think you're being kind of arrogant here. I think you're being egotistical. Oh, really? Why is that? Tell me. I'm interested to know. But if someone tells you that you have ego and you're like, no, 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 I don't have ego. No, 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 I don't even want to hear that. Get away from me. Like, I don't have ego. That's the ego trying to protect itself. It's trying to protect the self. If someone tells me that they think I have ego, really? Can you share more? I'm interested to know. Because I'm interested in getting rid of this ego. If there's any ego there, I'll lean into it. Really? Tell me more. Right? I'm not going to reject what they're saying because as soon as you push it away and reject it, that's the ego. That's aversion trying to push it away. So if somebody ever tells you they think that you have ego, say, oh, really? Can you explain more? I'm interested to know. Because when you hear other people's opinion and you take that on, you don't necessarily believe what they say because you don't want to believe what I say, so you shouldn't believe what other people say either. But take on board what they say and then investigate that and see if it's there or not and work with it and try to eliminate it. And if you're concerned or you're not sure, ask me, say, David, this is the situation that happened. Do you feel this is ego or arrogance coming through? But never, 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 never assume that your ego's gone. Wherever it raises its head, cut it off and let it go. That's the best way to ensure that you dissolve the ego because you're never going to assume that it's actually gone and you just always actively work to eliminate it. So I'd like to thank all of you for joining us in today's class. This topic of ego is actually quite interesting, I think, because it's the one thing that is there that's going to constantly tell you how great and wonderful you are. And it's going to always want to convince you that you're more enlightened than you really are because the ego doesn't want to go. It's like a bad tenant. It does all these bad things and it doesn't give you any benefit whatsoever. It's a bad tenant that you want to evict out of the mind. You don't want this guy around or this girl around. You're interested in getting rid of her at all costs because there's no purpose. There's no wholesome purpose. There's no benefit to have this ego around. But that ego is going to want to keep convincing you that he's gone 
and that you're more enlightened than you really are because the further you go closer and closer to enlightenment means the ego is going to get out of here more and more. So when you start convincing yourself that the ego's gone, that's when you know that the ego's still there. Or when you try to convince yourself that you're enlightened, this is when you're headed for trouble. So the most enlightened people in the world, they won't tell you that they're enlightened. They're actually enlightened, but they won't tell you. They're not interested in telling you that they're enlightened. They're not even interested in convincing themselves that they're actually enlightened. So convincing yourself that you have eliminated the ego or convincing yourself that you're actually enlightened are some of the most detrimental things that you could ever do. Because if you believe that you're enlightened, you might walk around with arrogance and pride, which means you're not enlightened. So you should never try to convince yourself that the ego has gone and never convince yourself that you're actually enlightened. Even if you know you haven't experienced discontentedness for many years and you know that you've helped other people along this path and other people are getting closer and closer to enlightenment based on the teachings that you're providing and what you're sharing, don't ever convince yourself that you are actually enlightened. Instead, this practice that you've developed where you started off applying learning and applying effort to learn teachings understand the truth and acquire wisdom and get deeper and deeper into that practice to gain more and more wisdom, just keep gaining more and more wisdom. As soon as you convince the mind that the ego is gone and you're enlightened, the tendency is for the mind to become complacent or lazy. And as soon as you do that, then you're not practicing the seven factors of enlightenment is investigation and energy where you investigate the teachings and you apply energy to learning more and more wisdom. If you just sit back and become complacent, then the mind's not enlightened. It doesn't actually go out into the world and do things and find ways to benefit others. So there's no wholesome purpose for the ego. And there's also no reason to convince yourself that the ego's ever gone and there's no reason to convince yourself that you're enlightened. Even though you haven't experienced discontentedness for many years, just go around considering yourself unenlightened and always being interested to learn and grow and understand, gaining more and more wisdom all the time. Because the more and more wisdom that you gain, the more and more wisdom that you acquire, the more enlightened the mind's going to become. Because what you're going to find is once you eliminate these 10 fetters and you're no longer experiencing any discontentedness at all, the mind can just keep evolving and going and going and going and going. And there's so much more wisdom in the world that you can gain because you're never going to understand everything in the world. You can always get more and more and more wisdom. But if you convince yourself that you're done and that you're enlightened, then you're done. You're no longer growing. The whole thing that you enjoyed about this path is the growth and the improvement and the evolution of the mind and the continued growth that the mind experiences, getting more and more peaceful, more and more calm, more serene, more content, more joyful, deeper concentration, deeper focus, deeper clarity, more profound memory. You can continue that even when all of these fetters are eliminated, you can continue to gain more and more wisdom. If you don't convince yourself that the ego's gone 
and if you don't convince yourself that you're enlightened. So enjoy the rest of your day. Have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Sunday, wherever you are. Anytime you see any little hint of the self or conceit, putting yourself above or below people, then eliminate it. Work to eliminate it through your speech and your actions. On Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation. Then on Saturday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation. Then on Sunday next week, a week from today, we're going to be in chapter 18, which is eliminating fears. Are you really scared? We're going to talk about how to eliminate fears from the mind because those need to be eliminated for the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If you have fear, even you're just afraid of the dark, then the mind isn't peaceful for that period of time when it's in the dark. So you've got to learn how to eliminate all the various fears in the mind. And we'll talk about that next Sunday. But between now and then, dive into this chapter about dissolving the ego. Be sure you read it really well. Maybe listen back to this talk. And there's a talk from six months ago where I discussed the same topic, but I discussed it in a different way. So you may want to go back and listen to that talk as well. So have a really wonderful rest of your day and a wonderful week. If anything comes up that you need questions or you need help, just reach out to me and I'll help you. Until next time, sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.